like Shakespeare. All right. I, I, I you know, you can, you can write academically about love. I guess why I don't know. Um, you could, you could set up an argument to try to convince someone that you love them. Why I, I don't know. Right. But when we try to express love, we are often left using metaphors, ideas that sort of circulate around what we feel, that, that express something other than definitions or categories of thought or even action. And action is a great way to express love, especially if the person you're trying to communicate with is a doer. They will appreciate and feel loved through your doing something. Um, not saying that from experience or anything. Those of you who know my wife, she is a doer. So if you see what, what Isaiah is doing here with these ideas, that, that we should come to the waters, that we should come by and eat so what if you took this literally? Listen to me diligently. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Great. I'm going to go eat rich food for lunch. Right? Like that's, if you wanted to take this literally, God wants you to eat unhealthy food. Fine with me. Um, but that's not what Isaiah is trying to convey. And so what we have in this passage is this, and I would argue the, the entire Bible is really a love letter. And if we're going to understand it, we need to enter into it with the question, what does this tell me about the love of God? How does this lead me to the greatest demonstration of God's love, which is the cross of Jesus Christ? And so... What Isaiah, let's just take that one word at the beginning of this chapter, and we're going to start there. This idea that we are to come, to come to the Messiah, this promised one who will be the fulfillment of God's love for his people. And as we contemplate what that means, we're going to look at this passage in that light. And I would, I would say that the first five verses are aimed at our call to come to the Messiah and find lasting satisfaction. We are to come to or into what matters. This is what God is calling us to. That which lasts, that which endures, that which transcends even this lifetime. That when we come to the Messiah, we are coming into something that is greater than our human experience. We are coming into something eternal and spiritual and vast. It is also meaningful. God says in verses 1 and 2 that we are to listen diligently to him, to heed what he says, to come into what matters, that we are to quench our thirst, I would argue that the, the thirst spoken of here is spiritual. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is the thirst that God is trying to cultivate within us 
And we are to seek out those things which nourish the soul. So, what always comes to my mind here is when Jesus is tempted in the desert and the evil one sets before him the option of turning all the rocks into bread. Um, This would not only satisfy the immediate hunger, um, but it would be a very lucrative business, would it not? Um, You could establish quite an empire if you could turn rocks into bread. Um, And so the temptation was set before him, and what did Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceedeth from the mouth of God. Sorry, I've got a little bit of that old King James in me. I've got to work that out still. So there is this call for us to come to what matters, to quench our thirst and delight in the table that God has set before us, the table of spiritual nourishment. And the, one of the most amazing things here is this idea that there's no cost. That to delight in God's table can occur without charge, without price, because this Messiah to whom we come has paid the price. He has paved the way. He has opened the door. And so we can come to this table and find nourishment for our souls free of charge. And as we do that, as we come to or into what matters, God calls us into his covenant. Covenant is a word we take in this passage. It's it's a word in its original context, which just means to cut in, to cut in. And and so God has cut his, his love, his will, his presence into our hearts that we are cut into God's family this idea in a covenant that there's blood that there's a sacrifice that someone has paid a price for us to be included and so here we are in this position where God has cut a deal with us the deal goes like this come to me because I love you And if you break your terms of the deal, my son will die on the cross to forgive you and restore you into right relationship with me. I'll say it again. God is a terrible negotiator. It is a bad deal for him, except what he gains is an eternal family. His eternal covenant family of people who have been cut in to his grace. We are to come into his covenant by stepping into eternal life, the stuff of the soul. We, all of us, become so fixated on the physical realities of our lives. Maybe it's our physical abilities. Maybe it's the physical pain of some ailment or condition that, that, um, draws all the focus of our time and attention. Maybe it's just a good meal. Maybe it's another person. Maybe it's a job or a house or a car. Who knows? 
But we get so focused on these things that will not last. And God says, I am cutting you in to something eternal, to something lasting, to something deep and meaningful, to something that will never fade or go away. And so we are cut into this eternal life and called to accept the love that can change anyone. Verses 3 through 5, Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. And when he says David there, he means all the people of David, all the, like all of God's people. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. You are the actual fulfillment of this portion of God's word. Whatever people group you come from, they were not known to this group of people, unless you happen to be Jewish or Arabic, or Arab, I should say. Uh, Those people groups would have been known, maybe Romans, but let's not get carried away, right? What I'm trying to say is that a people that could not have been known to the people to whom Isaiah was writing are going to come to the Messiah. Every single one of us is among that group of people. We are the fulfillment of God's word. You are what he's up to. And he's not going to stop. He's going he's to move that grace through you into the hearts of others who have, were not known to the people to whom Isaiah was writing. We, as the church, are a living miracle of grace. And so we are called to come, to come to lasting satisfaction and to come and find lasting security. This is where Isaiah speaks or begins to to transition towards his final uh, big theme, this idea of eternal sanctuary. He's been talking about our state of separation in sin, the, the salvation that the Messiah will bring to us, and now he's beginning to move into the final 10 chapters of his work to talk about this idea of eternal sanctuary, that we in the Messiah can find lasting security. We find this when we come into his grace, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. You probably think, because you're, you're human, 
that I'm some kind of holy man, right? You probably know better. You've known me your whole life, Zach. Um, you probably think that I'm some kind of a something. I don't know what to call it, right? <laughs> you, you, Jason knows what to call me, um, and he's probably right. I am no different from you. I have terrible thoughts. I say terrible things. I have a temper. I am impatient. I just, just, just fill out the list, right? What I need is the same thing that you need. I need to come back to return to the grace of a loving God. To find his forgiveness, his mercy, how does Isaiah put it here? His abundant pardon, his compassion. We are to come into the grace of God if we are to find lasting security. We are to turn to the one who is near, who is right here in our presence that we ignore that we forget, and we are to return again and again and again to his compassion. The turn, as Isaiah articulates it, is away from my sin and into the compassion of God. This is not a one-time deal. There, there is an element to our faith, that there is a one-time step toward or into the Messiah, into his forgiveness and grace. But then every day, every moment of every day is a continual returning to that reorientation away from our sin and toward our Savior. And this is what Isaiah is trying to point us toward, that there, in that always supplying well of grace we can draw from it every day we can return to it and drink and find forgiveness and so we find lasting security by coming into his grace and by coming under his will isaiah reminds us that god's ways are not our ways that god's thoughts are not our thoughts and you might think that's obvious. But I probably won't make it 200 yards down this road when we leave here today without thinking that I know the way. And without forgetting to rely on God's word, his grace, his spirit to direct my way. And so we return to the well. We draw again. And we return to his will to seek his mind and to seek his ways. To hear the voice of God. How do we do that? Well, it's right here in our hands. His voice is here. He is speaking to us. And so we are to be those who listen, who seek, who come into his grace and under his will, and who come back 
to his word. This is our grounding place. It centers us. It's the anchor that keeps us in place. Think about this for a minute. The the youngest words in here are 1,900 and something years old. And God has done something in this love letter that is impossible. These ancient words are still alive. The human heart has not changed since the very first word of the scriptures were written. We need grounding. We need grace. We need to be reminded that we're not God. That his ways are not our ways. And so we are to be a people who come back to his word. I absolutely love verse 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Dang. The strength in that articulation of truth just cuts me in a good way. It reminds me of of why we return to this time and time again. God's word goes forth through his people and it never returns to him empty. Wow. So, as a father, that would be awesome. Like, hey, whatever I tell y'all, it will happen. But that's not the way it happens. Right? They think for themselves and do their own thing, and usually they're right, and that's, you know, it's not important right now. God, as a father, sends out his word, and it always does its work. That is both striking and comforting all at the same time. That the word of God goes forth and never returns to him empty. Yes. So, we are to be the people who come back to this word because that's where we find growth. Just like the rain waters the land and brings forth the fields and the wheat and the bread, so God's word waters our souls. We are to find growth in God's word like water on a farmer's field to cause things to sprout, to grow, to flourish, and provide nourishment. And we are to find in his word joy and peace. 
I want you to think about, just for a moment, the people to whom Isaiah was writing. Their capital, including their temple, their church, if you will, has been destroyed by a foreign army. And when I say destroyed, I mean like teams of oxen hooked up to the foundations of this temple and they were dragged apart and burned. And the walls of Jerusalem were piles of rubble. And for 70 years, virtually no one lived there. There was livestock grazing in what was once the streets of a thriving city. There is no greater metaphor for the devastation of sin than what the Babylonians did to Jerusalem. And it's exactly what I do to the people around me when I sin. I cause devastation. And God speaks into this harsh reality and says, I am going to restore joy and peace. What? Here? Here? Are you serious? Have you heard the things I say, the way I act, the things I think? How on earth can you bring joy and peace to this conflicted heart? And God says, watch me. And his word through Isaiah that he would, in fact, restore Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, reestablish the center of worship among his people, it was fulfilled. That actually happened. The Messiah himself was consecrated on that ground when he was eight days old. He was circumcised and consecrated on that ground that lay in devastation to the peop- in the time of the people to whom Isaiah was writing. Complete destruction becomes the place where the Messiah himself is consecrated for our hope, for our joy, for our peace. And to come back to God's word to find growth, joy, peace, and eternal security. Verse 13, last phrase, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the reversal of evil. So you look in verse 13, the thorn will be replaced by the cypress. Where do cypress trees grow? Right on the edge of a river. They must have water. And so the thorn is replaced by a thriving tree. Our sin is taken by the Messiah. And we are infused with his righteousness and his spirit. And this complete reversal of the separation and devastation of sin, Isaiah speaks of it here. It shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. We are the people 
for whom the Messiah worked to reverse the poles, to take us from a state of separation to a state of eternal sanctuary, to give us security, to restore, to rebuild, to establish hope in our hearts after the devastation of sin. We are the fellowship of the undeserving, of the ones who look into the devastation and don't believe. And then God works anyway, because you know what? He said he would work, and he always fulfills his word. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we marvel at your word, at the ways in which you have been at work for millennia, weaving these truths not only into your word, but into our hardened hearts. That we can look up from the devastation and see the grace, the compassion, the love, the forgiveness, and know that there is hope. That you have sent your, your son, our Messiah, to not only atone for our sin, but to restore and rebuild and renew and make us a part of your eternal family. Lord, we need to remember that we are secure in your arms, that your love is unstoppable, that not even the grave could hold the love for your son in place. For he burst forth that first glorious morning of the resurrection and restored hope for all of your people. Lord, help us to return to that well every day, to drink from that grace, to be nourished at your table through your word, each and every day of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.